The year is 1944, and war is raging in every corner of the globe. Back from his exile to Broadway, and determined to relaunch his Hollywood career at 20th Century Fox, director Otto Preminger is about to face down his own greatest conflict as he comes head-to-head with Daryl F. Zanuck and assembles a remarkable collection of dopes who shall never forget the weekend Laura died. We've got Dana Andrews in the basket and Waldo Lidagger in the bathtub on this week's episode as we discuss the 1944 film noir classic, Laura. saw this about Maisel Day, but Amazon did a promotion here in LA to do throwbacks with different businesses. So the prices were like 50s prices. And so they had 30 cent gas at a gas station, but they picked a gas station that's right off the exit for the 10 freeway in Santa Monica, which is one of the most congested stretches of any highway, probably (laughs) in California possibly in the entire country. And they had to shut it down within, I think, about like 45 minutes because it was completely impeding traffic. And also it started at 9 a.m. Another great idea from Jeff Bezos. So people had been lining up for hours at that point and there was no, you know, rush hour traffic could not get through. And it was a disaster and people were just like screaming on Twitter about it, how they're all going to be late for work. So classic Amazon. Once again, something we would do. I mean, on the plus side, we wouldn't underpay our workers. So that's true. We also wouldn't have those weird Twitter bots to talk about how I love those. Those are fucking crazy. Basket cast fan listener Mandy. uh, (laughs) I am not being (laughs) in prison. I am not chained to a radiator (laughs) in a salt mine in Utah right now. I have not been forced to mine Bitcoin for the last six months. I must say, for a charming, intelligent girl, you certainly surrounded yourself with a remarkable collection of dopes. Hello, welcome to What's in the Basket. I'm Tiff, and this week we're talking about Laura from 1944, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Amelia. Hi. And Candace. Howdy. So with the benefit of three quarters of a century's hindsight, the 1944 20th century Fox film noir Laura is now largely regarded as the singular and perhaps most iconic work of its producer-director Otto Preminger. The events that led to Preminger's spearheading of the film, however, are nowhere near as straightforward as its reputation as his masterpiece would suggest. Laura is a movie that was plagued by power struggles from day one, a mishmash of clashing personalities and second-choice casting decisions that by all rights should have failed miserably. Instead, and to the surprise of just about everyone involved. It was a box office hit and critical success that has only gained in esteem through the intervening decades, both a crucial milestone in the careers of its cast and crew, as well as a defining entry in the film noir genre as a whole. 
Once again, as with Frank Henenlotter in Basket Case, I'd like to take us back very briefly to the early life of Otto Preminger to provide a little historical context for where he and, by association, Laura, and really any number of 1940s noirs directed by European and frequently Jewish expats came from. Preminger was born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, specifically in present-day Ukraine, in 1905. He was the son of a public prosecutor, and though Preminger himself was not religious in his adult life, his family was Jewish. Eastern Europe was naturally a turbulent place to live during this period, and the Preminger family fled to Austria, first to Graz and later Vienna, in the beginning stages of the First World War. I bring up Preminger's origins in wartime and interwar Austria because it's interesting to note the unique worldview that was brought to Hollywood by exiled European filmmakers like Preminger, Fritz Lang, Billy Wilder, Robert Siodmak, and others, men who were instrumental in the rise of film noir, a genre that combined moody visual styles influenced by German expressionism with a general disillusionment with the human condition. Of course, noir is rarely outright political, but there's an obvious line to be drawn between the golden age of the genre and the fact that many of its key figures had come of age in the prelude to the Holocaust and were presently watching the brutality of the Second World War unfold from the comparable safety of Hollywood. So, Preminger was in his 20s and working as an actor and director on the Vienna theater scene when he first encountered the head of 20th Century Fox, Joseph Skank. It was common during this period for Hollywood studio executives to scout for talent in Europe, and it was on one of these trips that Skank secured an interview with Preminger in 1935. He was invited to Hollywood and arrived in the United States in 1936. This is when he first met Daryl F. Zanuck, the co-founder and production chief at Fox, who had previously worked as a screenwriter during the silent era, which will become important later on. I know he was a bit of a dickbag. Yeah. And uh, I know that he went through women like, I can't come up with a good uh, metaphor. What would be a good metaphor for somebody tearing through vaginas? Um, I don't know. No, he was, uh, Zanuck was a bit of, was a, bit of a playboy. And I know well, that he, he was meddlesome. <laughs> and um, like you're going to go into, obviously, yeah, Preminger had a lot of trouble with Zanuck. But I think that was kind of characteristic of how Zanuck approached directing kind of a, across the board. Like he thought of himself not just as being a studio chief, but also as like helming the movies that came out from his studio directly and that was not oftentimes like wise or like really um beneficial creatively yeah he saw himself as a creative force from from what i gather from this research as sort of having more of a say than he necessarily should have had and uh, yeah. being a he he saw himself definitely as like the screenwriter in charge on this one. Very like Goldwyn. He's got like a whole like Goldwyn thing. How Goldwyn thought that he was personally responsible for the success or failure of, of his movies, mostly the successes. He was eager to take credit for those. He's got a, a lot of Goldwyn in him, I would say. I mean, that's the same with any kind of CEO or like any kind of leader of anything that very keen to take credit for successes and to push our failures onto other people. So Zanuck initially assigned Preminger to direct two minor romantic comedies, the Lawrence Tibbet musical Under Your Spell and a screwball comedy with Anne Southern and Jack Haley called Danger Love at Work. I haven't seen either of those. I don't know if you guys have. That's a bad title. That's a bad title. Yeah. I haven't seen them, but uh, yeah. <laughs> they no. sound like the kind of movies no one's seen. Yeah. They were followed in 1937 by the Robert Louis Stevenson adaptation Kidnapped, which when time screenwriter Zanuck had scripted himself, of course. Oh. It was to star Warner Baxter and Freddie Bartholomew, and Zanuck was determined that Preminger should direct, even though Preminger had never heard of the novel and <laughs> felt that he was the wrong guy to direct a picture set in the Scottish Highlands, which I think was a fair <laughs> assessment on his part. I mean, Warner yeah. Baxter in the Scottish Highlands? Ooh. <laughs> But still, the nature of the studio system was such that he had no real choice in the matter. So he took the assignment, and this is where the tensions that you might expect 
from, you know, a collision of two domineering assholes began to arise. Uh, within days of the start of production, Zanuck was screening the dailies and accusing Preminger of deviating from his script. Preminger, meanwhile, insisted that he had been totally faithful, leading Zanuck to double down, all of which escalated into a full-fledged screaming match between the two men in Zanuck's office, <laughs> ending with Zanuck ordering Preminger to leave and Preminger slamming the door on his way out. So from this point on, it became increasingly clear to Preminger that he had turned himself into something of a pariah on the Fox lot. He was effectively blacklisted by Zanuck and ultimately wound up leaving Hollywood for New York entirely to direct on Broadway. Quitter. Yeah. <laughs> I say go. Fuck that. Yeah, he just fucking bailed. Uh, for several years, actually, several years passed with Preminger's stint in Hollywood appearing to have been just a total bust. He had gone back to the stage and with time, uh, once again, found success there. So he was still directing in New York when Zanuck went overseas to London to work for the British Army Film Unit in 1941. And in Zanuck's absence, the task of running 20th Century Fox went to the executive William Getz. So at this point, Preminger is still like extremely banned from Fox by Zanuck, who has no interest in not being like a petty bitch who holds onto a grudge for literally almost a decade. But Zanuck's in England. He has no actual say over what goes on right now. So Getz decides to get a little weaselly with it. He invites Preminger back to Hollywood based on his successful track record on Broadway. And Preminger begins a quest to find a property that he can develop before Zanuck gets back. So he wants to like squeeze one in <laughs> while he's weaseled his way back onto the line. Well, Zanuck's in Europe squeezing some out. I can't believe you were saying I was the worst and that I said the worst <laughs> things. When you You're just the worst say person who's ever lived. All the time. <laughs> So he starts rifling through the Fox story department with Getz's encouragement and settles on two projects, a screenplay titled Army Wives and the Vera Caspery novel Laura. So Army Wives went into production first with Preminger directing and was released as In the Meantime Darling, another movie I will probably never see. But Zanuck beat the clock on Laura and came back to Fox right on time to be like, no, absolutely not. You are not directing. I banned you from directing. You're not doing this. So he relents enough to let Preminger produce on Laura, but he will not let him direct it. He's... God, what a petty bitch. Ugh. Yeah, this this is... 1944 and their conflict had been in 1937 so it's been a while to still be holding this grudge so yeah just in case this ego trip between preminger and zanuck isn't enough conflict also quickly arose between preminger and vera caspery they had actually met earlier in new york when caspery was shopping around the script that would later become her novel which was then titled ring twice for laura bit less catchy yeah bad title uh. <laughs> no one can title things what is happening the postman always rings laura twice rings laura twice. <laughs> preminger was interested in the story's basic premise but in true preminger fashion was very willing to point out everything that he felt was wrong with it <laughs> uh, so they went their separate ways and caspery wound up uh, collaborating with the playwright george sklar to turn out a script that they hoped to tour with Marlena Dietrich in the title role. However, even with Dietrich's potential involvement, there were no takers. So eventually, Caspery adapted the script into a novel, which Fox purchased the rights to for $30,000, or about $550,000 today, which is a pretty decent yeah, payout. That's, that's pretty sweet. <laughs> she gets a little... She complains later on, and I am I would probably take the $500,000, but all right, Vera. Uh, this, of course, opened the door for Preminger to have another stab at shaping Laura according to his vision, which was clearly not in line with Caspery's. In his role as producer, Preminger worked with screenwriters Jay Drattler, Samuel Hoffenstein, and Betty Reinhardt to develop a screenplay with virtually no contributions from Caspery. The novel used multiple narrators to tell the story of Laura, a young woman thought to have been murdered, who later 
shows back up and essentially becomes a suspect in her own murder. Preminger believed the multiple narrator device was too convoluted for a streamlined suspense film and limited the narration to the single character of Laura's mentor, Walter Lidecker. I can't say that he he made a bad call with that one. I think that multiple narrators would probably muddy the waters. Uh, Zanuck, though, ever the backseat writer, inserted himself into this dynamic as an unsolicited Mm. script doctor. He gave Preminger a taste of his own medicine with such recommendations as and this is serious, making Lidecker into a morphine addict. As opposed to just, like, a beefcake addict. (laughs) Which is what he is. (laughs) Oh, fucking hell. How did Zanuck even make a good movie? Zanuck's junky Lidecker angle was ultimately shot down, but nevertheless, Caspery was appalled by the final screenplay. She demanded to know why her novel was being made into a B-picture and took issue with the script's depiction of Detective Mark McPherson as a gritty cop in a trench coat rather than the debonair detective that she'd created. For his part, Preminger stated in his autobiography that he felt, quote, no obligation to be faithful to the book when adapting a novel for the screen. (laughs) So Preminger doesn't give a shit. No. He doesn't give a shit. I mean, knowing how it turned out, I'm like, he wasn't wrong though, so. Yeah, I I can't like hold anything against him really in this because he was on the right side of history with this one. Yeah, I mean, it's also like, it's popular entertainment, you know, it's not like, you know, he was adapting like a Melville novel or something. I mean, Vera's, I think, a little little overrating the uh, artistic significance of her decisions well the fact that she yeah she only turned it into a book when she couldn't sell it as a script it's like yeah you know it wasn't going to be fine literature despite casper's objections the project continued full steam ahead zanuck approved the screenplay even without his cool morphine subplot and laura was boosted to a picture status under his personal supervision which of course was both a blessing and a curse for preminger he still wouldn't allow preminger to direct so it fell to preminger as producer to find a director himself uh this turned out to be more difficult than expected as virtually no one on the fox lot wanted to touch the movie with a 10-foot pole <laughs> most notably lewis milestone turned down the project with a note to zanuck that read quote preminger probably knows what to do with the script he should direct it i won't in the end the job went to ruben mamoulian an established director known for films like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Queen Christina, Golden Boy, and The Mark of Zorro, asked why he believed Mamoulian had taken the job that no one else wanted. Preminger politely speculated that he, quote, wanted the money. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, good good a reason as any. At this point, production hadn't even started, and already Laura was a tangled web of conflict between Preminger, Zanuck, and Caspery, though she had no real influence to speak of. Uh, Mamoulian dove headfirst into this mess the moment he arrived on the scene by pointedly ignoring Preminger, just as Preminger was pointedly ignoring Zanuck and Caspery, and the first cracks appeared during the casting process. So this is where some beloved characters show up in the narrative. For the role of Laura's mentor, Waldo Lidecker, Zanuck and Mamoulian wanted the character actor Laird Krieger, a bulky villain type who had just come off a successful turn as Jack the Ripper in The Lodger. Preminger was totally thrown by the suggestion and insisted that Lidecker must be played either by an unknown or by someone with no history of bad guy roles, if the final twist, which of course is that Lidecker was the murderer, spoiler alert, uh, was going to work. So Zanuck stuck to his guns, but so did Preminger. Neither of them was going to go down without a fight. During the casting process for Laura, a touring production of Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit arrived in Los Angeles, headlined by Broadway star Clifton Webb. <laughs> the man himself. Hold that gang plank. Hold the gang plank. Hold it, hold it, I'm coming. Ah, well, I made it. All up the gang plank. 
I made it. Here I am, bound for America. Now, let me get used to that wonderful fact. I, Charles Condamine, am going to America. Land of the free and home of the brave. I'm not brave. Perhaps I wouldn't be here if I were. But I'm free. Free at last. Free of women and free of... <laughs> Ghosts. I'm escaping from a situation that... Well, maybe I better... Maybe I better begin at the beginning. It's quite a story, you know. Uh, Webb was a sophisticated dandy type. He was already in his 50s with three decades of stage work and some appearances in silent films under his belt. Uh, accounts vary <laughs> between the two of them as to when Webb and Preminger first met. Webb recalled being introduced to Preminger by Tallulah Bankhead during Preminger's New York years, while Preminger claimed he had neither heard of nor seen Webb prior to Blythe Spirit. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> wow. Preminger, I have no memory of this man. <laughs> I've never heard the song Easter Parade in my life. I have no idea. <laughs> On the avenue, Fifth Avenue, the photographers will snap us, and you'll find that you're in the rotogravure. Oh, I could write a sonnet about your Easter bonnet. And of the girl I'm taking to the Easter parade. In any case, uh, Preminger was greatly impressed by Webb's performance in the play, saying, quote, I was fascinated by Clifton Webb. I felt he must play this part, and I told him so. Preminger, therefore, effectively offered the role of Waldo Lidecker to Clifton Webb without so much as consulting Zanuck. God, I just, every decision he makes, I'm like, I can't say he made the wrong one. Yeah. It's just some like, big brass balls to to bring somebody into the production who hasn't had a film role since like what like 1925 I think is the last time that Clifton Webb had made a movie in Hollywood. Webb's recollections of the circumstances that led to his being cast in Laura are very much in character, very Waldo Lidecker goes to Hollywood. <laughs> On the night that Blythe Spirit opened in Los Angeles, he remembered Moss Hart telling him, "I bet after you open in the play tonight, you'll have plenty of movie offers." To which Webb replied, according to his own recollection, mind you. I wouldn't work in this blankety blank place if they gave me a million dollars a week. I wonder what really got him on board. Like if he was just like, well, your first scene is is you in a bathtub exposing <laughs> yourself to, to somebody. <laughs> and Clifton was like, well, well, actually. It's it's when he found out that he was going to be exposing himself to Dana Andrews specifically. Yeah, that'll <laughs> come into play, actually. Uh <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> oh goody. Oh goody. <laughs> Uh, recounting his first meeting with Preminger, Webb said, I thought it would be stupid to stamp my foot and say no. So I said, it depends entirely on the picture and the part. He said, well, if you did a part, what kind of part would you like to do? And I said, a charming son of a bitch. So he lifted a script from his desk and handed it to me. It was called Laura. So I read it and obviously realized it was a wonderful part and right up my street. Offering the role to Webb without consulting Zanuck was, of course, an extremely risky move on Preminger's part. He was met with staunch and sometimes homophobic resistance, unsurprisingly. One casting Shocking. director, Rufus Lemaire, said they couldn't possibly use Webb because he, quote, flew. <laughs> 
This argument did nothing to dissuade Preminger. It was precisely Webb's upper crust effeminacy contrasted with the brutish masculinity of a Laird Krieger type that made him perfect for the role in Preminger's eyes. Zanuck surprised Preminger by ordering a screen test for Webb and even allowed Preminger to direct it, but uh, Webb <laughs> complicated matters by refusing to test with Gene Tierney and insisting upon doing a scene from Blythe Spirit instead of one from Laura. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, however, Webb's test impressed Zanuck, and Webb, who had insisted that he wouldn't work in this blankety-blank place if they gave him a million dollars a week, was given the role of Waldo Lidecker. Gotta love a man who sticks to his guns. Oh, it's also funny, I'm just gonna say, throw it in here, that Zanuck wanted Laird Krieger because he doesn't want a homosexual. Like, well... I hate to break the news to you, but yeah. got a little bit of insight. I mean, Zanuck knew, obviously, but um, I guess, I, I don't know, I guess he thought that it, it it was not a particularly queer screen personality that Krieger had, which is funny because when you look at it in retrospect, it's like he absolutely does, but whatever. Yeah. I don't think Zanuck has a lot of good insight in anything, though. No. So the part of Laura herself was originally intended for Jennifer Jones, who had just won an Oscar for her starring role in The Song of Bernadette. However, Jones was at this time romantically involved with David O. Selznick, who advised her to turn it down. She took his advice and was sued by Fox for almost nine million today. Whoa. <sighs> but the suit was ultimately settled. I mean, it's, it, Selznick cost her a lot of money because Selznick died in debt, too. She was fucked over multiple times by Selznick's bad fiscal sense. Ladies, get you a man who knows how to balance a checkbook. The whole Selznick thing in general was a, uh, a bad, bad choice. On yeah, that God, that was a weird, that was a weird union, I definitely have to say. <laughs> so... The second choice for Laura was Jean Tierney, a 23-year-old fox starlet who had been discovered by Zanuck four years earlier, performing on Broadway in The Male Animal. She'd made her screen debut opposite Henry Fonda in The Return of Frank James and had since starred in a handful of films, including Heaven Can Wait in 1943. When she received the script for Laura, Tierney hadn't worked in some months, having taken time off to embark on a USO tour while pregnant with her first child. It was on this tour that Tierney contracted German measles, and as a result of the illness, her baby, Dario Cassini, was born partially blind, deaf, and mentally disabled, and in arguably one of the most tragic parables for the dangers of fame, uh, Tierney would later encounter a fan on the street who happily recounted the story of the time she was under quarantine with German measles and busted out to meet a movie star. So every time I hear that one, I'm just like, holy oh, fuck. It's the worst. That it's is the hard. worst one. Like, oh, oh, yeah. she really didn't fucking deserve all of that shit. It People fucked her up so much. are so weird when it comes to celebrities. And I guess it's, it's good to know that we've always been like that and it's not some sort of modern innovation with people going on twitter and being like r.i.p to your grandma stan luna you know <laughs> always <laughs> always just been fucking wild and out giving gene tyranny german measles uh but in early 1944 the full extent of baby daria's health problems which would later leave her institutionalized for most of her life were not yet apparent and tyranny was looking to stage her comeback in order to retain her popularity as a viable fox player she liked the Laura script, but had some issues with the role of Laura herself. She was concerned with both the somewhat insignificant screen time and the fact that Jennifer Jones had turned it down. Uh, in her autobiography, she wrote, quote, 
If Jennifer Jones doesn't want it, I asked Daryl Zanuck, why should I? The role is right for you, Gene, Zanuck assured me. You'll be good in it, and you'll see this one will help your career. I had a hunch he might be right, and I always tried to play to my hunches. So she took the role. Finally, someone with some good insight. For the role of Mark McPherson, the young detective investigating Laura's murder, who finds himself falling in love with her portrait, Zanuck wanted John Hodiak. Uh, however, and John Hodiak is one of those like second tier leading men. He was in like Lifeboat and the Harvey Girls. He's got that big mouth. I never understood him. Oh, he's got a yeah. huge mouth. Yeah, no, it's huge enormous. Honking mouth. However, another Fox player was actively pursuing the part. Dana Andrews had been given the Laura script by Lewis Milestone on the set of The Purple Heart during the period when Preminger was searching for a director. Dana was the Texas-raised son of a Baptist minister who had at this point been appearing in movies for four years, including a supporting role in the Gary Cooper, Barbara Stanwyck comedy Ball of Fire, and a small but pretty impressive performance in the Henry Fonda, William Wellman Western, The Oxbow Incident. Mr. Davis, will you find someone you can trust to look after my wife and children? You better take some older woman along. It's not going to be easy. Don't worry. Your family will be all right. My parents are dead, but Miriam's live in Ohio. Kincaid didn't want to sell those cattle, so maybe his wife will buy them back for enough to cover that travel. Tie them up. I suppose it's no good telling you again that we're innocent. No good. It's not for myself, I'm asking. Other men with families who had to die for this sort of thing. It's too bad, but it's justice. Justice? What do you care about justice? You don't even care whether you've got the right men or not. All you know is you've lost something and somebody's got to be punished. I tell you, there's nobody to look out for them. They're in a strange place. Can't you understand that, you butcher? This is a fine company for a man to die with. Shut up! You shut up! You shut up! However, he had yet to break through as a leading man, and Milestone was convinced that Mark McPherson was the role that would do it. Uh, Dana agreed and went so far as to have Hedda Hopper campaign for him in her column. He got a major boost when Zanuck's wife visited the set of Wing and a Prayer and was so taken with Dana that she convinced Daryl Zanuck to give him the role. Dana wanted the role so bad that he was willing to ally himself with a Republican like Hedda Hopper. <laughs> Literally, Hedda fucking Hopper. <laughs> Yikes, I mean, a fucking fascist, effectively. And Dana's yeah. like, oh, I don't know about this, but I <laughs> really, really want this part. <laughs> Class traitor, Dana Andrews. Look, he makes up for it later. Oh, yeah. He yeah. was using it. It was all the That's so true. Ugh, we stand. Unbothered king. We stand unbothered king. <laughs> we stand a man who manipulates crypto fascists to get roles <laughs> in Fox melodramas. The cast of Laura was rounded out by Judith Anderson as Laura's aunt, Anne Treadwell, and Vincent Price as Laura's fiancé, Shelby Carpenter. Anderson had been nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar in 1940 for her performance as Mrs. Danvers in Hitchcock's Rebecca, while Price had been in Hollywood for about six years, mainly playing supporting roles in period pictures. Price and Webb had known each other on Broadway in the 30s, and it's actually likely Webb advocated on Price's behalf for the role in Laura, so... Because, again, he had a little, little bit of a crush. A little bit. I am also realizing now that I left out Bessie. Oh, and we stand. Come in, Miss Clary. Never mind the Miss Clary stuff. My name's Bessie, and I'm a domestic, and I got nothing to be ashamed of. Sit down, Bessie. Her letters. And her private diary. You've been reading them, pawing over them. It's a shame in the face of the dead. That's what it is. It's a shame. Sit down, Bessie. I'll stand on my own two feet. Don't you go ordering me around. I ain't afraid of cops. I was brought up to spit whenever I saw one. Okay. Go ahead and spit. That'll make you feel better. That's uh, that's Dorothy Adams, and she was friends with Dana um, okay. because they had worked together at the Pasadena Playhouse. They had both studied together at the Pasadena Playhouse in the 30s, 
And that's part of the reason why um, McPherson and Bessie have those like tender like little moments like when he smiles at her when she's freaking out and like, you know, when she's leaving the apartment and he gives this like, oh, it's okay, go on, you know, whatever, because that's that's Dana and Dorothy Adams friendship coming out on the screen. Yeah, you can really see the, the yeah. camaraderie. It's very nice. Yeah, it's because he, he, she's the only other working class person in the movie. Yeah. yeah, and McPherson's like a comrade. Anyway, yeah. So that's that's a little bit I know about Dorothy Adams. Finally, after about a hundred years of bullshit, it was time to start production on Laura. Filming began in April 1944 under the direction of Ruben Mamoulian. Webb's first day of filming since the silent era found him half naked for the opening scene in which Lidecker is interrogated by McPherson while he sits in the bathtub where he writes his columns. Webb recalled, quote, while I was sitting waiting to be called, a young man came up to me and made himself known. He was Dana Andrews. He was very friendly and warm and put me at my ease. I was naturally nervous, but trying to appear completely detached. I sat in that bloody tub for two days in hot water until at the end of the day I had shriveled like a prune all the stagehands were most courteous and the property men couldn't do enough for me to make things easier and comfortable they brought me coffee and coca-cola when i saw myself in the rushes sitting in the bathtub looking very much like mahatma gandhi i felt i might vomit (laughs) after it was over dana saved my life with a big swig of bourbon the first shock of seeing myself had a strange effect on me psychologically as it made me realize for the first time that i was no longer a dashing young juvenile which i must have fancied myself being through the years in the theater I would like to remind you that Clifton Webb was in his 50s already when this happened. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, man, I mean, the mirror. I, he just, like, it's like when you see a picture of yourself and you're like, ah, oh, oh, do I really <laughs> look like that? But, like, he had just not seen an image of himself for, like, 25 years. Yeah, because he had a painting up in the attic and he thought it was working. <laughs> he has a picture of fucking Dorian Gray, like... And it's not doing shit that whole time. (laughs) (laughs) I just, in that scene, it's such a, it's such a strange way to be introduced to his character, but I guess it is very in keeping with like how Waldo Lidecker, um, sees himself and like he won't cut his bath short to meet with a you know flat-footed detective like he doesn't see that as being on his level so he's not going to you know mess up his own life to do it but it's just like it's a very like weird it's just so weird And also he gets out of the tub and exposes himself completely to Dana Andrews. Dana doesn't even look away. Exactly. Like McPherson just does not truck with this whole thing at all. He just like throws the washcloth at Waldo and then Clifton climbs out and then Dana's just making exactly like unbroken eye contact with him. (laughs) And as I said before, um, when we were watching it, I said Clifton would love Lush today. (laughs) So, <laughs> uh, the, like the like little um like stuffed over chair in that bathroom is also so funny to me like the idea of having like <laughs> living room furniture so that you could put your naked ass on it once you get out of the shower Ugh. but also like he want to like, be waldo when, when dana is like l- walking through the apartment and mcpherson is walking through the apartment and he like picks up something and waldo is like ah don't mess with that and it's like how can you see that's a wall you have to go through a closed door <laughs> To get to Waldo, how can you see that? Do you have x-ray vision? What's happening? Yeah, he traded his youth for x-ray vision. Waldo's x-ray specs. I also like when Dana walks into the bathroom and uh, Eli Decker tells him to take a seat and he walks right past the squishy little chair and goes for the uh, <laughs> the little like spindly kitchen chair and he turns it around and like straddles it completely unnecessarily. <laughs> like a he's a high moment. school counselor going to rap with some kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
It is so funny. God, that whole opening monologue is is honestly, I, I think it's the best opening monologue in any movie ever. I shall never forget the weekend Laura died. A silver sun burned through the sky like a huge magnifying glass. It was the hottest Sunday in my recollection. I felt as if I were the only human being left in New York. For with Laura's horrible death, I was alone. I, Waldo Lidecker, was the only one who really knew her. And I had just begun to write Laura's story when another of those detectives came to see me. I had him wait. Just the first line, you know, about, you know, the, the night that Laura died. I mean, I yeah. just, oh, it's a, such excellent screenwriting. The, and entire, then... the entire narration that Waldo does is, is so good. Like, usually monologue in that form, like a narrator, is it can be really cheesy and, I like, I can really go, Ugh, oh, this has got an internal monologue, ew. But, like, I think with Laura it works a lot because it is him basically writing as if he's writing his column or he's talking on his radio show. So it really, I think Preminger was completely right to say that this should be all from his perspective because then yeah. he can inject all of this really flowery language around it but it also really shapes the narrative and really helps the payoff so much. Yeah. And Waldo's also, I think it also works because you totally believe Waldo is the kind of person who would have interminable internal monologue and just expect people to just keep up with it and pay attention to him. That's very Waldo. So Webb was not the only one displeased with the early rushes. In a telegram to Preminger, Zanuck described Andrews as an amateur without any sex appeal and Webb is flying. Judith Anderson, he said, should stay on the stage, while Preminger himself should have stayed in New York or Vienna where you belong. The apparently unimpressive early footage was the result of a truly nightmarish atmosphere on set, where Mamoulian had immediately banned Preminger from the premises, and at least according to Preminger, was seriously misdirecting the cast. Uh, yeah. Uh, Mamoulian is not... When I think of strong performances, Mamoulian is probably not the first director that comes to mind. I don't think he's much of an actor's director. Zanuck called Preminger and Mamoulian into what, from my reading, sounds like several meetings. Some frame it as one, but I think it was sort of a nightmare of meetings, uh, where he asked Preminger what was going wrong with the picture. Preminger argued Mamoulian was directing the cast to overact and went so far as to get up and demonstrate the more understated acting style he believed would benefit the script. Zanuck was impressed and asked why he hadn't explained this to Mamoulian, to which Preminger replied, Ruben doesn't listen. At one point, even Dana Andrews was brought in on one of these meetings where Zanuck told him he should play the role more like Pat O'Brien in the 1942 crime drama musical Broadway in which George Raft apparently plays himself. That sounds like a weird one. Uh, to which Preminger replied, that's what I was telling Reuben. Mamoulian was infuriated by this claim, saying, that's the lie, you did not, much like the argument in Zanuck's office nearly a decade earlier. This escalated into a huge blowout between Preminger and Mamoulian, with Dana caught in the middle, uh, <laughs> until he eventually got permission from Zanuck to leave the room. <laughs> the girls are fighting. Like, just edging towards the door, being like, please, may I leave? <laughs> 
fucking hell. Like, honestly, Preminger really should have just done, like, a full Eddie Murphy to John Landis' fucking choke him out on set. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. Being like, if you do that again, I will drop you. Like, <laughs> So this carried on for a few weeks, with Mamoulian turning in consistently unimpressive rushes until finally Zanuck fired him in the most humiliating way possible at lunchtime in the executive dining room in front of 18 directors and producers <laughs> by saying, I think I'll take Mamoulian off the picture. Then on the way back from lunch, Zanuck very casually informed Preminger that he could start directing, and that's how Preminger finally got full control over Laura. The first right decision Zanuck has made. And then another possible factor in the explosive rift was the portrait of Tierney as Laura, which plays such an iconic role in the film. The original portrait was done by Mamoulian's wife, the painter Azadia Newman, but Preminger was dissatisfied with the painting and felt it didn't capture the sense of mystery he wanted, so he replaced it with a portrait of Tierney done by studio photographer Frank Pavolny, which was airbrushed to appear more painterly. Certainly, it seems that the conflict over Mamoulian's rushes and his tendency towards a more melodramatic style of acting was the primary force behind his removal from the picture, but um, yeah, I think Preminger's rejection of the portrait probably didn't help. You gotta think, what did the original portrait look like? Was it like that Italian like lady when she fixed up that fresco of Jesus? <laughs> Is that kind of what we think it looked like? And like Preminger's Jean looking like, like a proboscis monkey. It's <laughs> like, ain't it? <laughs> like, Are there photographs that survive? Of, of I the couldn't painting? find any. Yeah, I would maybe, I, maybe not do. Maybe that painting just sucks so hard. <laughs> like, they best not it. to commit this to memory. Uh, for their part, the cast had gotten along well with Mamoulian. Vincent Price described the atmosphere on his set as lovey-dovey, but Mamoulian made the transition between directors as difficult as he possibly could by telling the actors that Preminger had been displeased with their performances, which I don't think was true. He was he was more displeased with Mamoulian's performance. Preminger's only real ally at this point was Clifton Webb, who was grateful to Preminger for casting him and seems to have trusted him pretty implicitly from the start. The rest of the cast came around to Preminger's vision when they saw his footage. Uh, as Price recalled... The New York society depicted in the film are all darlings, sweet and charming and clever and bright on the surface, but underneath they're evil. Otto understood this in a way that Mamoulian did not. Mamoulian is a nice man, isn't he, Vincent? Otto asked me, and I said, yes, he is a nice man. Otto said, I'm not, and most of my friends are these kinds of people. I think that was true. Otto was very given to the sort of society group of people who are basically really kind of evil people underneath. Telling tales on himself right there, I see. Yeah. Throwing himself and all of his friends under the bus to justify firing Ruben Mamoulian. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> However, there was still some pretty consistent tension on set. Preminger was a notorious taskmaster. It's not a coincidence that he was reputedly cast as a Nazi in multiple films. <laughs> he even managed to frustrate the easygoing Dana Andrews with his controlling directing style. After having campaigned so hard for the role, Dana wound up making several attempts to be removed from the picture. Uh, <laughs> at one point, uh, so frustrated by Preminger's bullshit, he said, Look, I can stay here as long as you can. The two men then sat doing absolutely nothing for two straight hours until Andrew's wife, Mary, arrived on set and asked why Dana wasn't working, to which Dana replied, We're having a little disagreement. 
Finally, Preminger relented and the pair had a more functional working relationship from that point on. But the workload under Preminger was still outrageous and exhausting. Jean Tierney often went days at a time without seeing natural sunlight. She was trapped on sound stages from before sunrise until late in the evening. Preminger and his cameraman, Joe Lachelle, sometimes spent hours adjusting the lighting for a single scene. In her autobiography, Tierney described Preminger as tireless, and she felt that the film's success made the effort worthwhile. Clifton Webb, on the other hand, responded poorly to the pressure. He was taking both uppers and sleeping pills to keep up with the schedule, and he suffered a nervous breakdown after filming that landed him in a sanitarium. Voluntarily putting himself on the Judy Garland diet <laughs> that Louis Vimeir had put her on for me in St. Louis. He's just like, ah, 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 ah. No, I don't, obviously don't agree with his methods. I mean, I'm all about the uh, proper treatment of workers and proper working hours and um, all of that. But I mean, when you look at the, the visual of the film, he did understand how to make it look good. Yeah, the hours of adjusting lights paid off. It oh, paid off. Yeah. It paid off beautifully because there are some scenes that like the lighting is so, so beautiful on Dana Andrews' face, like the shadows that are cast on his face and like you can't see his eyes but you can only see like the slope of his nose and his jaw and it's like that is film noir is that look and so many films try and emulate that mastery of light and shadow and they don't quite get it they they confuse it and they think oh it just it means dark with a little bit of light and it's it's not that it's using light and shadow to create like a sense of mystery and a mood and like to enhance the story and I think that they really got that in this movie whether he needed to work his actors that hard to achieve it, he probably didn't <laughs> need to. He could have worked it out a little bit beforehand, but... Um, Why should he have to show up early to work to figure these things out? I mean, it paid off in the end, like, because it's beautiful film, but fucking get your shit together. <laughs> no, you get, the, you get the full sense of, like, grey as a spectrum in Laura. Like, the, the black and white stock is as much a character... Mm. in Laura as anything else. Yeah. And I also, I respect Preminger for spending endless hours scrutinizing and just and just pouring over the visual details while also failing to ever learn how to pronounce Dana's name properly. <laughs> he never learned how to say Dana. He would call him Donna. <laughs> and that's just a little thing that I find very funny. It's like how Goldwyn would call Joel McRae, who was under contract with him for like 10 years. He called him Joel. It's just a power move. <laughs> it's a power move, exactly. And I really admire that about Preminger because Dana was so hard to ruffle that I'm sure he was just like, oh, how can I get one over on this, this shit-kicking Texas son of a bitch? And I was like, oh, all right, okay, all right. Donna. Anyway, continue. <laughs> so the costumes for Laura were designed by Bonnie Cashin on a budget of $15,000, which is over $200,000 today. And they were accordingly elaborate. Tierney underwent hours of fittings and Preminger insisted upon renting real diamond and pearl jewelry. Louise, for the last time, will you marry me? I won't, but I saved some chicken livers for you. Oh, you're an angel. In the meantime, darling, you think you could get this spot out for me? I can afford a blemish on my character, but not on my clothes. Mm, could need another mouth. Webb, who was something of a famous clothes horse in his personal life, ordered Waldo's entire wardrobe directly from his favorite New York tailor. What was it called? Harry High Pants the Tailor? <laughs> Those things come up to his nipples. 
Look, he's he's getting on in years. He's got to have everything sucked in. It's like Spanx. He's got to cover the lines of his girdle. I mean, oh as Webb recalled, Dana Andrews became very clothes conscious after he had seen the clothes I had worn in Laura. He asked me, what is the matter with my suits? And I told him they weren't the clothes of a gentleman, much too exaggerated, which I found was the trouble with tailors in California. They looked more like zoot suits. And the odd thing is that the moment a person would come from the West to the East, you could spot them immediately by the cut of their clothes. So he was nagging Dana real hard. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Dana made the zoot suit work, though. (laughs) Like, he cuts a fine silhouette in those huge pants. Yeah, I think it's also because Dana has such interesting proportions. Dana is one of the people who he can wear those huge, hairy, high pants while also looking, I think, very dashing. I think he's got some sort of weird, like, torso to inseam ratio that makes the whole thing work. He's got really odd proportions. Like, when we were watching it just now, I was just, I was telling Amelia in the scene when McPherson confronts Shelby over what happened during the weekend at the cabin, it's like, you get to see Dana's feet, and they're fucking huge. <laughs> I'm going to murder you. I'm just you saying, get to see Dana's feet. <laughs> they're shoes. They're in shoes. They're, they're in shoes. Like bare feet. That's they're in really shoes. bad. That's but a bad thing to say on this podcast. She like- did go into like she was like, "Wow, they're so big and they're so <laughs> wide." And I'm like, they're oh, like Frankenstein okay. feet. They're like Karloff Frankenstein's monster feet. They're really extraordinary. I, I recommend that everybody go back and rewatch that scene and look at Dana's flippers. Shrek's eyes are so deep and warm. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. There's also that the question of like why was Dana class D? What is it? Four F or whatever from the army. Um, oh, we're going to get into of that. His, of his concave chest. Yes, Dana's chest hole. Chest hole, which we have gone into great, well, extensive research to try and <laughs> understand what exactly that meant. And we found like one split second of, I say we, but it was me, who found <laughs> one split second in the film The Frogman where Dana appears shirtless like, and for one second, the huge dog tags he's wearing, like, is flicked to the side. And you can kind of see that there is a depression in his chest. So it's very pronounced. It was very pronounced. Like, we, like, he keeps it was real. <laughs> he just kept, <laughs> he kept all of his hatred for Ronald Reagan <laughs> deep inside that. Ugh, I'm sorry, Todd. I don't even remember what we were talking about because we had to go into Dana Rhapsodies for a little bit. It's just... Suits. We were talking about suits. Costuming. Suits. Right, right. Yeah. yeah I, I was just talking about how uh, Clifton Webb uh, claims that he, like, queer-eyed Dana. Oh. Well, that's <laughs> why. Another thing. So I said, funny. I said, um, because, like, when Waldo is, he's like, well, I, I made a change her hair and made her dress better and and i i said when we were watching it is waldo technically the first queer eye (laughs) yeah he's been gollies the shit out of her but (laughs) in definitely like in a in a what not to wear kind of way laura had innate breeding but she deferred to my judgment and taste i selected a more attractive hairdress for her I taught her what clothes were more becoming to her. It's so funny. I, I don't know. That whole that whole dynamic is so funny. 
yeah, no, Dana also just because we have to always inject Dana stuff. Yeah, Dana definitely he he learned, I guess, that kind of clothes horse uh, habit from from Webb because he became like very particular about like how he dressed and he had a lot of very expensive clothes. And Dana liked to look nice after working with Clifton Webb. Webb taught him despite being a full-grown adult that Dana was at this point, <laughs> how to wear clothes that didn't make him look like an idiot. Along with the portrait of Laura, perhaps the most enduring aspect of the film is its score. The head of music at Fox was Alfred Newman, who, like many directors who had turned down the project, felt Laura was too messy of a production and wanted nothing to do with it. So he assigned the project to the young composer David Raxon. Raxon had begun his career composing on Broadway on a recommendation from George Gershwin and had worked with Chaplin on the score for Modern Times in 1936, but he had yet to really spearhead a major film score on his own. For the movie's principal theme, Preminger wanted to use Duke Ellington's Sophisticated Lady, which Raxon argued was too popular. They also considered Gershwin's Summertime, but they couldn't get the rights, so it fell to Raxon to compose an original theme. As he recalled... Coincidentally, that Saturday, I received a letter of farewell from a lady I was in love with. I put the letter on my piano on Sunday evening, and it was on my mind as I began to compose. The tune came to me, the melody of our theme song needed to evoke melancholy, and I had just been given a hearty dose. He played it for Preminger, who was impressed, saying, I don't know much about music, but I like this. Let's put it in. It's such a good score. I'm sorry. No, it's, <laughs> it's really good. It's such a good score. Like, out of all the films from before that point, I'm like, can name a few scores that I like, but not on the same level like, they don't have the same impact on me as the score of Laura. I just think it's such a a complete score that I, it's just so good. It's so good. And, I mean, it's only one melody throughout the entire film that's just been treated in different ways to convey different, like, moods. Like, yeah, it's, it's slightly adapted to be, like, at a party or a slightly adapted to be an intense moment. But it's just so good and the groove remix the groove remix is extremely good as well uh raxon's laura theme was hugely successful upon the film's release fox received so many requests for a recording of the song that johnny mercer was hired to write lyrics for it and it quickly became a standard vincent price remembered seeing the film for the first time and being blown away by the music which he called marvelous while hetty lamar when asked why she had turned down the role of laura commented they sent me the script not the score no less than cole porter described the theme from laura as the romantic ballad he most wished he had written himself it's good as hell I mean, we were trying a couple weeks ago, Amelia, to like think of other scores from that era that we loved, and it was like just head and shoulders above the rest. I think. Oh yeah, I definitely like. I bought it from the iTunes store because I I love it so much, and I will just listen to it because it's it's so evocative and it really puts you in a certain kind of mood, and it's a very obviously noir mood. It makes you feel so much more than a lot of scores that came out at that time. I mean, obviously films did at that point have some semblance of score. Um, if they weren't a musical film, perhaps their scores weren't as impactful. But um, this one definitely had a long-lasting impact that so many other films just failed to have. Yeah, and especially at Fox. I don't, at Fox, I'm trying to think of Fox pictures that have that have really notable scores, and there's not 
I don't know if this is a classic example of Fox not being willing to shell out the talent, or maybe I'm talking out of my ass, but I'm trying to think of some and like only how green was my valley comes to mind. That's a that's a famous score and it's and it's well done, but I don't think anything on yeah like on the level of success of, of Laura because Laura the score from Laura is so famous that I, I think a lot of people who have never seen the movie have heard a rendition of the main theme at some point in their lives you know Sinatra recorded it yeah it was it became such a standard that it's how a little bit little piece of the movie lives on in pop culture it's a testament to how well crafted it is that it's still relevant you know Mm. sonically all these years later Against all odds, Preminger finally produced a rough cut of Laura that was screened for Daryl Zanuck, who, unsurprisingly, because nothing could ever be easy with Zanuck, decided the entire final third of the film was unusable and had to be reshot. Uh, Zanuck's vision saw the whole movie revealed to have been a dream, but not Dana's dream, as you might suspect. Rather, it was going to be Lidecker's dream, with Laura stating in voiceover, nothing was true, it had all been in Waldo Lidecker's imagination. That's so stupid! <laughs> I know! Uh, that's just him being like, and it was all a dream, bye! Yeah. The same elsewhere <sighs> ending where it's all happening inside of a snow globe. Oh, fucking hell. It's the dumbest possible. I hate it when people interpret the movie as being a dream of McPherson's. I just, that's a personal pet peeve of mine because I think, first of all, it's so obvious and so lazy. And second of all, like, fuck off. I, I don't know. I just something about that, that particular, it just, it comes across as being like so, like, oh, so smug, you know, like, eh, well, actually, you know, it could just be a dream. McPherson could have just dreamt the whole thing and just fantasize. And it's like, okay, all right. Well, what do you gain from that? What do you, what greater significance and symbolism and meaning do you derive from that? None. Well, so I think, I think, see, this is one of the, points we're going to disagree i like that there is the possibility that you could interpret it that way i don't know no no i like the ambiguity yeah i don't i don't necessarily like that interpretation of it but i i like i like that it creates this oh what if what if what if but i also like the fact that the real twist is not it was all a dream or it was his dream or whatever that the twist is actually really central to the plot and like makes sense in that context not just something left of center being like and it was you know all in his head the whole time he just really wanted to fuck that corpse like (laughs) you know yeah i feel like if there wasn't the twist at the end that interpretation would be more more valid because if it did turn out to be shelby or whatever then it would be it it would be more interesting it would be more interesting in terms of like an interpretation um but i think that i don't know i don't know just it just gets my goat it's just like it's just one of those things I think it's the fact that so many male critics would are just are like always salivating to be like, oh, well, I think you'll find it was yes. actually this. And it's like, actually, I don't care what you have to say or what you think at all ever. So I don't know why you're telling me. I think there's also a little bit of like an implication that maybe like Waldo is not strong enough to commit a murder or that men who seek to possess women in the way that Waldo seeks to possess Laura aren't actually dangerous and violent or maybe that um a relationship between somebody like laura and mcpherson because again there's that whole like anti-chad thing and dana is nothing if not a chad (laughs) and male critics resent chads very deeply Uh, so maybe they they want to they prefer this vision in which you know chad pherson gets uh you know screwed out of out of his beautiful corpse wife yeah, That's just I my think, theory. I, I, yeah, I would have to agree. Like critics, particularly male ones, would feel 
like oh, a bit not all men about yeah like, Waldo being capable of doing something like that when as a woman you know that that's more than likely something that could very easily happen to you or somebody that you know because men are fucking scum. Yeah, and I feel like a part of that, uh, maybe that, I don't know if it's, I always use the phrase, I overuse the phrase cultural context, but I think we've, we've lost it in the sense, I think people are maybe more eager to accept the idea of McPherson as being like a clear audience stand in than maybe people were at the time. I think we look at the movie in too much of a black and white thing in the sense that McPherson is obviously the hero and he's obviously the the protagonist of, of the narrative in the sense that he is the one who quite literally brings Laura back to life. But I think, I don't know, I, I don't think, again, in large part because we're also looking at a perspective of knowing that Dana Andrews is going to become a real movie star after this. Dana is not uh, maybe whom people are going to assume that Gene Tierney is is going to end up with. Maybe it's just a little bit of that, that casting oddity at play. Maybe people think, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe Vincent Price is going to swoop in. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I think we look back at it and assume that there's a more straightforward narrative than there really is in the movie, which I think undermines or at least detracts from some of the really elegant ambiguity at play there. Both Tierney and Andrews were brought in to record narration in accordance with Caspery's multiple narrator device, which Preminger had very intentionally removed, and a new ending was shot. Preminger's sort of guardian angel in this final struggle was the columnist Walter Winchell, who attended a screening of the new rough cut and enjoyed it greatly, telling Zanuck, big time, Daryl, big time, but the ending, I didn't get it. You've got to change it. So Zanuck immediately turned to Preminger and told him to go with the original ending. You also like, um, I, I think multiple narrators is a, a shit way to do this particular film because then you lose the, what is it? A bit like a transformation sequence. The scene in which, which we're obviously going to discuss because I think it's it, a lot of people's favorite scene in the movie when, um, McPherson is alone in Laura's apartment and he's drinking some of that cheap ass black pony and he sits there and he kind of stares up at the portrait and he and right before he falls asleep but when he's walking around and Dana's got this really lovely um little bit of of action where he goes over into her bedroom and he he looks in her drawers and he pulls out some for like silky lacy things and then he like sniffs her perfume but it's it doesn't feel like predatory or invasive in any way it feels really magical, almost like it's a bit like fairy tale like, you know, and that whole sequence in which you can just see McPherson fall in love with Laura is so significant. And I feel like with multiple narration, you would lose all of that emotional mystery that's built up throughout the whole movie because you're always guessing about people's motivations. And there's nothing that kills suspense faster than having somebody unnecessarily illuminate what is going on in the scene yeah it's like just adding too much exposition and i think that film would really suffer from that i think that a lot of the strength of this narration that we do have is that it's so unreliable uh and that just adds to the mystery later on but i also yes. think in that scene where he, mcpherson is um 
roaming through the apartment, he falls asleep so fast. He's like, <laughs> you think he's like, he's got all these worries on his mind. He's, you know, very troubled about these recent developments in his case. And he falls asleep in like three fucking seconds like that. Well, I'm like, boy, I wish I was resting that easy. Like, He drank a fuckload of bourbon, though, because he invites Waldo and Anne and Shelby to all have a little bit because he's trying to suss out whose drink of choice it is, you know, and then he just, he, he's just, he's popping them back like it's a cherry Coke or something. I mean, Dana really tosses it back and then it's like, well, damn, a fucking wonder. Yeah, I mean, but also I think throughout, I think this is another thing that I really enjoy that Dana's characterization of McPherson, even though Dana can't say his own character's name, I just like to say <laughs> that. He says it twice in the movie wrong. Hammer that washcloth, please, Mr. Mr. McPherson. 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 Mark McPherson. McPherson. Lieutenant McPherson. McPherson. McPherson, tell me. McPherson. Mark McPherson. Mr. McPherson. Well, McPherson. Hey, McPherson. Does McPherson, any calls come through? He he gives off this air that he doesn't give a shit about anything that's happening. Um, like he he'll play his little like game when he's listening to them talk, but you can tell that he is listening and he's making jumping to conclusions and he's making observations and he's doing all of that. But I, I just like that he he will not engage with that you know high society bullshit that Clifton and Vincent are so deeply set on doing i just i really like that kind of tension that it creates throughout the movie like that initially you think oh he's this tough like cop he's really rough around the edges he just doesn't fit in he's you know all of that shit that clifton is spewing about him like he's this horrible man but you can tell that he's working with a kind of finesse that neither of the other men in the picture possess and they totally underestimate him and his yeah. intellect and waldo treats him as a little bit of, of a curiosity when he refers to him like as like the man with a, a leg full of lead and i think dana also and this is a, across dana's whole filmography but particularly laura he embodies so well this particular like generational emotional repression that is so common amongst like men of, of the greatest generation and it, there are little tiny nods to mcpherson having some something boiling a little bit under the surface like when waldo is snapping at him for playing with his little baseball game and distracting him and then mcpherson's like well you know it keeps me calm will you please stop dawdling with that infernal puzzle it's getting on my nerves i know but it keeps me calm. Okay, let's go. And um, when he's just, again, tossing back those belts of Black Pony, or when Laura walks through the door in his response to her, you know, evidently, you know, not his apparently not being a necrophiliac. Um, <laughs> and uh, when she says that she's not, she doesn't understand how she could ever have been in love with Shelby. And then there's like this really brief, like, relief breaks across his face and then it immediately vanishes and it's so subtle and it's so quick i know that you went away to make up your mind whether you would marry shelby carpenter or, or not 
What did you decide? I want the truth. I decided not to marry him. I'll see you in the morning. Good night. Good night. I again, Dana. Dana is just such a good actor, and I think a big part of it is that he's acting for. He's acting for the big screen. He's acting for the only way in which people saw movies at this particular point in time. And there's so much subtlety to that performance, and he's so tightly wound. You know, I, I, that's what he's he's so coiled. I guess you know, a bit like a snake, and it's just it's so fascinating to me. I mean, the fact that he just he summarizes his whole attitude towards the world. When Waldo asks him if there are any women who aren't dames or dolls, and he just goes, a doll in Washington Heights once got a fox fur out of me. You know, I mean, it's... McPherson, tell me, why did they have to photograph her in that horrible condition? When a dame gets killed, she doesn't worry about how she looks. Will you stop calling her a dame? Look around. Is this the home of a dame? Look at her. Not bad. Jacoby was in love with her when he painted it. But he never captured her vibrance, her warmth. Have you ever been in love? A doll in Washington Heights once got a fox fur out of me. Ever know a woman who wasn't a doll or a dame? Yeah, one. But she kept walking me past furniture windows to look at the parlor suites. Ugh, it's a perfect union of dialogue and characterization and performance. And I can't imagine this part with anyone other than Dana in it. John Hodiak. <laughs> Fuck John Hodiak. <laughs> <laughs> My God, you can't even the last time I watched a John Hodiak movie. I feel bad for John Hodiak. Like, what a footnote. Can you imagine being the guy who lost out on the lead in Laura? I mean, sucks to suck, I guess. Laird Krieger didn't care because then he was dead, so. Yeah, he died, like, right after. Yeah. Laura was released in October 1944, six months after shooting commenced. It was a critical success, a box office hit, shot for a million dollars, grossing twice that. And it received five uh, Academy Award nominations, Best Director, Best Art Direction, Best Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor for Clifton Webb, and Best Photography for Joe Lachelle, who won. Webb described a phenomenon on the 20th Century Fox lot, which was referred to as the Laura Luck, so named because Laura catapulted Dana Andrews to leading man status, allowed Preminger to resume his career as a director, and secured Tierney a new and improved contract. Uh, the Laura Company would reunite in several iterations through the years. For example, Preminger and Andrews worked together again on Fallen Angel in 1945 and Daisy Canyon in 1947, Preminger and Tierney on Whirlpool in 1949, and all three in Where the Sidewalk Ends in 1950. But of course, none of those really replicated Laura. Well, I mean, I really like Whirlpool and I also really like Where the Sidewalk Ends. I think they could... Yeah. I feel movie. like Where the Sidewalk Ends has a couple Dana foot shots. I <laughs> seem to recall there being some big shoe content in that, but and then oh, and then, yeah, it's a good continue. movie. I really like Where the Sidewalk Ends, especially because all the scenes that are shot in that is like isn't an Italian restaurant. Like it's a really kitschy kind of little restaurant that Dana always goes to and then he brings Gene Tierney into it and like the owner's like, oh, I see you've got a got a girl with you. <laughs> so it's like I really like that it it feels so different from Laura in the fact that in Laura um outside of the case, McPherson doesn't really have a life. Whereas yeah. in where the sidewalk ends 
he has a whole life. I mean, it's obviously not the same character, but like he, it's just such a reversal of that dynamic that was working in Laura. It's just all mixed up in when Sidewalk ends. I think that's what I like about it. Yeah, no, I agree. I didn't mean to like cast aspersions on it. I think it's a great movie too. I mean, it never, it wasn't as commercial, nowhere near as commercially no. successful no. as Laura. So yeah, it's an astute observation. It's also, <laughs> I, I think one of the really remarkable aspects, I love, I love seeing, you know, different bits and pieces of the Laura cast, you know, reunited in different pictures because I, I think for, for me at least, part of the great joy of the studio system is being able to see different permutations of the same actors in different roles and in different situations. Like, yeah. I, I love to bookend, you know, Gene and Vincent Price in this with, you know, Le- Leave Her to Heaven, which has got such a fascinating dynamic because it's so distinct from the dynamic between Laura and Shelby. I, I just, and you get to see this whole other, like, level of emotion, emotional range, but. I, through like the magic of like how the human brain interprets you know sights and sounds it's like oh hey it's them and you're like yeah brain congratulations <laughs> you know and I, that's also part of the the what makes where the sidewalk ends so i think fun and um mm. rewatchable for me i i just i love all these performers together it's such a shame that we never got you know like laura to electric boogaloo because <laughs> even though it would have sucked dick it's also so fun i mean just the four of them gene and dana and vincent price and clifton webb sparring is just like endlessly like delectable for me i love gene tierney what a I magical person oh. we have to do leave her to heaven too i oh. love that movie just letting that little bitch drown I... <laughs> what are you trying to do force a confession out of me you've been holding out and i want to know why it'll be easier for you if you tell the truth what difference does it make what I say? You've made up your mind I'm guilty. She's, uh, she's, uh, she's so, one, she's such a great actress and obviously she's extremely beautiful in like literally every lighting situation, which mm-hmm. is crazy. Uh, but I also, I just, she's underrated, I guess, in the fact that people are just like, oh, she's the really beautiful one. And it's like, well, I mean, I guess she is very beautiful, but also she did... People always say, oh, she's no Catherine Hepburn. I was like, well, I mean, she doesn't have to be. Like, she, the roles that she did take and that she made her own are extremely good and she's extremely watchable in all of those roles. Like, even in the um, Love is News remake, That Wonderful Urge, she's extremely watchable in that. I don't know why she's not as esteemed as so many others in her peer group. People are hostile towards Jean's particular beauty. I think I think people find it intimidating. In no song because of its its flaws. I, the, people always make jokes about the overbite, but I think there's something that strikes a chord with people in in Jean's face that just I, I think people find it. There's something about it. it's like. Meanwhile, there's this endless PR campaign to like rebrand Grace Kelly as a great actress, you know, and, and people fall for that. I mean, again, no shade. I just don't think that Grace this is, is like the exactly second a time that you've gone I in just... on Grace Kelly. <laughs> just, I, you know, I don't accept mediocrity unless it's coming out of a slim Canadian twink. Okay, I'm not, I'm not down for it. Um, but. No, I I, th- I just I don't know. I think people people are afraid of Jean. I think there's something in her that's just so like r- reckless and wild and beautiful. And again, not to bring too much of, of her p- 
her personal struggle into this because that's what she's been reduced to so much um, in terms of critical analysis. But there's so much depth to her as a performer, I think, in large part because of her issues with mental illness off screen. And it's the same thing with like somebody like Frances Farmer. People are still interested in Frances Farmer and they find you know, kinship with Frances Farmer, knowing that her life went to absolute fucking shit over the fact that she couldn't get adequate treatment um, for her mental illness at the time in which she lived. But I don't think that Jean has had that moment yet. I don't think people have really realized that. And I I don't think that she's touched that new generation of people who can um, find some solace in that. And I think she's, she's kind of reduced, I think, to a tragic figure in a lot of ways that aren't really fair because she brought so much to the screen and i don't know i don't know what it is i don't know what it is i i think it just comes down to that people are very stupid yeah uh, <laughs> and can't do or think anything correctly i mean it's just it's frustrating to see i mean it happens with so many stars especially in particular pockets of people who are interested in these movies they really love talking about the tragedy of stars lives they really love like going into all that and be like, oh, it must have been so hard and like not actually appreciating them as a complex individual who experienced a multitude of things, not just the misery of their lives. Like it happens a lot with people like Marilyn Monroe and Judy Garland. Like people love festering in that negative and miserable side of these stars' lives when – well, these people did have successes and they did have joys and they did have careers that are worth more than you reducing them completely to their suffering. Jean is a great movie star and I'm waiting for her to get I think I think Hayworth is probably the best comparison to to what I'm I'm talking about. Yeah. Rita Hayworth. People Yeah. People underrating Rita's gifts because she is so magnetic and so beautiful. But I think part of the reason is because both Jean and Rita aren't beautiful in a way that's icy and far off and distant. And so they don't get humanized the same way that people have attempted to humanize, again, a Grace Kelly. Because people find something like uh, the people are attracted to like the unknowability, you know, the ineffable the ineffable beauty of somebody like a Grace Kelly, whereas I think Jean is just a little too close to home, so people feel like a rivalry with her. I think, again, I think taps into that whole, like, competition with your older sister kind of thing. I don't know. I don't mm. know. Jean looks like somebody who bullied a lot of people in high school, I guess, is what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> <laughs> so the friendship that had begun between Dana Andrews and Clifton Webb on the first day of shooting in the bathtub also endured. One letter from Webb to Andrews sent in 1947 and printed in the Andrews biography Hollywood Enigma by Carl Rawlison read, quote, Just in case, dear boy, you may feel all hot and slightly bothered with a violent desire to vomit on the 13th of this month, it will simply mean that your vibrations are at an unusually high pitch for the simple reason that this is the day I am arriving at Pasadena complete en suite. I shall proceed in an armored car to a tiny villa that I have taken in Bel Air. I am informed by my tiny spies that it is all two, so I expect to be very happy. I shall also expect you to give up your entire time to me from that date on. I love that. I love Wab. (laughs) What a I mean, that's the other point that I've written down in my notes. Like, I said, are we to believe any of these men are straight? Like, in the movie, (laughs) like, just all the scenes they're together, they're completely ignoring all the females in the room. Yeah, that's part of why I think it's so 
funny and not funny, I guess, but like predictable that Zanuck was uh, a little wary of Webb because Webb. So we don't believe Webb as Waldo as uh, being like an adequate like sexual suitor for Laura because it's like so much more complicated and it's not. It's about, like, possession, but not in, like, the pedestrian erotic sense of, like, a straight man wanting to to possess a woman. It's, like, this whole mm-hmm. entire, like, body and soul possession. It's this Pygmalion, you know, complex that he has going on. And the performance that this most reminds me of, oddly enough, is Laird Krieger, but it's Laird Krieger in this gun for hire. Because his what a good fucking movie. I know. Because oh. <laughs> uh, his dynamic with Alan Ladd is so fascinating. When he's asking Alan Ladd how it feels to kill someone, and he's like sucking on a spoon, and he's like, How does it feel when you're doing it? And then he does that little like gasp, like little shiver thing. I mean, oh God. You know, it's <laughs> so much this of, of a similar vibe, you know, injecting that like almost like like morbid sexual interest i i don't know i web is just such a fascinating person he has such a fascinating screen persona and he's an interesting antidote to um the earlier generations of older gay and bi actors you have in hollywood who have to develop kind of like an like an asexual screen persona after the code you know when you have like your edward everett hortons or your your franklin pangborns where they might end up in ironic you know, haha, you know, gender reversals or whatever, but it's always about like a prissiness, you know, that's that's what it's about. But Webb has this like fascinating way of looking at a male co-star that is like indisputably sexual. And but he doesn't look at all a gene that way. And it's just such an interesting dynamic um between the characters in this movie. His crush on Dana is so palpable, and also, I guess, his little bit of a crush on Price, who I guess he probably would have had a better shot with, knowing what we know now about Price's <laughs> personal predilections. But um, I like the fact that he just he wanted him a slice of that. It's the same obvious pattern, Laura. If McPherson weren't muscular and handsome in a cheap sort of way, you'd see through him in a second. He wanted to fill that chest hole. He wanted to fill that chest hole with his love. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> Oh, no. You're supposed to go all in that chest hole. You're supposed to go all. Put a dip? Like, no. Like a nacho dip? Take, take, no, take Like an onion artichoke. Like he was in that fucking bathtub for two days. Oh, yeah. You you know, I mean, Todd, are you going to, are you going to say the exact words that Webb employed to, to assess Dana's interest in him? Do you have those in your notes? Yeah, I do. Um. According to Dana's daughter, Susan, it's likely that Dana knew Webb had a crush on him and, quote, played up to it. And at one point, Webb apparently told Dana to shit or get off the pot, but they were never more than friends. So I guess he got off the pot. So Webb just interpreting this whole, like, basic friendliness as as flirtation. Uh, (laughs) Or maybe Dana was getting getting a a little flirty. I mean, what we know, what we know about Dana, he probably was just working it to his advantage, just like he did to get the role. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think um, also so one of the things that okay, because I'm just like I I can't stop. If it's wrong to love Dana, I don't I don't want to be right. But he is is somebody who just he had such a strong appreciation for people of like integrity and like intellect, and he knew that like Webb also found like the whole situation vaguely ridiculous and that movie acting was kind of ridiculous and kind of embarrassing, you know, as like a 
an occupation for a grown man. And um, I think he admired Webb's talent. And I, I don't know. Dana strikes me as somebody who is like a like genuinely admires the people that he works with. And I think that's why he had such a good relationship with so many of the people who directed him. You know, he he understood that there was uh, a common pursuit there. And then I guess Webb may or may not have thought that that meant that he was going to get lucky. I, I don't really know. <laughs> Should have gone for Vincent Price. I don't know what he was thinking there. I think if the question was posed to you, we'd know who you'd pick. So can uh, we well, blame him? No, you can't blame him. Dana is so beautiful. And okay, I'm sorry, Todd, I'm hijacking your, your episode and turning it like in, into the, the, you know, the, the Dana and hour. You're doing no, this like we're it. never going to talk about another Dana film again. I know. I, I, have, I have crack in the world on my list to do. <laughs> oh, God. I just, ugh. I, I, I just wanted to say, particularly the lighting in this movie, because again, the, the lighting um, was Oscar worthy. Is that uh, Dana has a really interesting face, and by that I mean that his face is all like planes, like all like unbroken planes, and um, there's no like wasted space in terms of the camera. Light doesn't get trapped, and he's like a disco ball. There's his little <laughs> shark eyes, and then there's this kind of um, a little fold. Um, going from from the base of his nostril, you know, sort of sort of towards his mouth, and that's really it. Otherwise, he has like almost like a, a oddly smooth skin, and the light washes across him in the way that the light would wash across somebody like a garbo or something. Like the planes of light, the way that that the light plays on his face is very similar, I guess, to a Dietrich or something. It's it's interesting. He's got very tight skin. Maybe he doesn't moisturize <laughs> enough, but. It's just that all that hot Texas air. Yeah, and all the booze drying him out from the inside. But <laughs> I, I don't know. I just Dana, Dana's face really amazes me. It kind of, I don't remember who wrote this because it's been so long since I read it, but somebody, um, some critic somewhere in the world made a really good point when talking about how Jimmy Stewart, because Jimmy Stewart, if you've ever seen Jimmy Stewart's eyes in color, you know they're very striking. But even when you see them in, in black and white, there's a certain clarity to them that allows the light to play on his eyes in intriguing ways, you know, and that works to his advantage as a movie star. And I just think it's the same way with the just the shape of Dana's skull, quite frankly. It, <laughs> it, the light plays with him in really interesting ways. And so you see it across all of his films, really no matter the, um, no matter the, uh, the exact genre. It works well in noir. They look works well in uh, war films. It works well in westerns. He looks really beautiful in the Oxbow incident, mm, um, yeah. which has a, a very particular style of lighting. I don't know. I think it's an incredibly versatile face is what I'm trying to say here. Now who's the necrophile? <laughs> you two are so mean to me. And who are you going to have to say inadequate and also, I meant to say inaccurate. Who's going to who's gonna do all these verbal flubs all the time and also be wrong about Zezu Pitts? I don't know. I'm pretty good at both of those things. <laughs> oh, God damn. <laughs> who's going to talk about feet? I was going to say, effectively, you're saying that Dana Andrews, arguably the only man you've ever loved, is a shark-eyed yes. disco ball with big feet. That's, that is exactly it. Yeah, <laughs> Dana is the only man I've ever loved, and he is a shark-eyed disco ball with big feet. So, thank you. Oh, can I just say a little joke right here? Because I don't sure. want you to cut it out, and I figure if I leave it in here, you're going to forget. Um, a note that I made that says, when Waldo sees McPherson looking at his grandfather clock... <clears throat> I noticed his attention was fixed upon my Glock. <laughs> <laughs>
I thought I would spring a Glock beam on you. <laughs> just while you were at your most vulnerable point. Anyway, yeah. continue with this episode. <laughs> you can it's cut funny that out. because um, later on he does whip out a gun from the Glock. Yeah. So, Wish it was a Glock. It would be better if it was a Glock, but I don't know if Glocks if existed Glock. back then. <laughs> Did Glocks exist in 1944? I don't think so. Oh, that's a shame. I mean, don't take that as red because I know next nothing about guns. Yeah. Again, we, much like Dana, are leftists and we don't know the basic. Oh, <laughs> um, also, while we're just talking about stuff, as I interrupt all of everything Todd's ever attempted to create give structure for i also think it's fascinating that price is so much more believable as a gigolo than ben lyons (laughs) (laughs) you believe that women are chasing vincent price down for sex and probably because he's like what like six four that might be it and he's got that cute little like southern accent in this when he says things like I'm not the conventional tap. That gets me every time. Vincent Price with the Southern accent is so jarring. Like, it's just not what you expect to hear from him. And I guess that's probably closer to his actual situation. But yes, it's exactly. It's like, it's so weird hearing things like that. But it it works so, he pulls that whole like, like simpering, like Southern Belle thing so well (laughs) in this movie. And again, how are we supposed to believe any of these men are heterosexual? Tierney herself in her autobiography gives perhaps the most succinct evaluation of Laura and its unexpected success. She regarded the character of Laura as unattainable, calling her the kind of woman I admired in the pages of Vogue as a young girl. She often downplayed her own performance, referring to herself mostly as a symbol, the unspeaking, hauntingly beautiful portrait on the wall that captivates Mark McPherson. And while I personally disagree with that assessment, I certainly agree with her further judgment that, quote, to analyze it further is like trying to explain air. Laura had the chemistry. We were a mixture of second choices. Me, Clifton, Dana, the song, the portrait. If it worked, it was because the ingredients turned out to be right. Otto held us together, pushed and lifted what might have been a good movie into one that became something special. And that's all I have. What's a good summary? What more do you need? You got a girl, you got a gun, you got an anonymous, semi-anonymous dead woman with her face blown off down there in the (laughs) morgue wearing someone else's lingerie. And you've got a disinterested man with a chest hole to uh, sort it all out. So what more indeed? Well, I guess what that's another one in the can. Yeah, I yeah. guess so. Uh, as always, you can check our non-existent links. We have to sort this out. <laughs> we could already have a quip deal by now. <laughs> Cry myself to sleep every night thinking about that don't burn our sponsors before we even have them no i'm saying i'm I'm crying myself to sleep with the fact that we don't have a quip deal i love quip (laughs) and i would gladly accept their money to buy more dana andrews memorabilia (laughs) (laughs) fuck off oh well thanks for listening leave a positive review another wonderful job of research thanks yes i good job todd Good yeah. job, Todd. I'm going to have to re-record a lot of that, but it's okay. It's okay. It's you also fun. have to edit out everything else I this said. Is the, <laughs> this is the second episode we're recording in a weekend, so it's a record for us, yeah. technically. Yeah. All right. Catch you on the flip side. Bye. Bye. Bye.
trying to think of an intelligent response that you could edit in there in terms of when I was trying to think about something you could describe Zanuck as. You might just want to cut it down to me comparing him to Goldwyn. <laughs> was well, yeah, I think we'll cut out the bit where you say he's chewing through vaginas or whatever the fuck you said. That's how he cast all of his movies. He would go to Europe and he'd be like, oh, well, this I, I slept with her, so now you got to put her in a movie. And then the directors of Fox would be like, oh, fuck. So I guess I'm just going to turn that Judith Anderson part into a long-limbed Serbian 23-year-old, I guess. 